Welcome to Writing Questions, Episode 3. I'm Stephen Hopkins, and today we'll be talking with an immigration attorney about what it takes to convince a judge. Our guest today is an old friend of mine. My name is Jonathan Shaw, and I'm in Denver, Colorado, and I'm an immigration attorney. Eleven years ago, John Shaw and I lived together for a few months in Mexico City, where we were both Spanish-speaking missionaries. Now, while my ability to speak Spanish is slowly dying in the dark recesses of my brain... John has kept it up. He married a girl from Colombia, he raises his four children to be bilingual, and has become actually somewhat of a public spokesman for immigration law on the local Spanish-speaking radio and television programs. Pues como explica el abogado Jonathan Shaw, casi el 90% de casos de madres con hijos son rechazados. En el caso de María tocó con mucha suerte porque en el mes While many law school graduates are struggling to find work, being bilingual has opened a lot of doors for John that aren't open to others. Like some kind of superhero origin story, John's journey toward being a lawyer actually started during a frightening incident that happened while he was serving as a missionary in Mexico. When I was a Mormon missionary in Mexico, close to Mexico City, on the outskirts of Mexico City, I was knocking doors with what we call our companion, and we were dressed up as Mormon missionaries with a name tag and white shirt and tie. And um, this Volkswagen Beetle with lights on the top and a number on the side pulled in front of us and blocked us off when we were walking. And it happened to be a police car. And a guy got out, one of them had a gun, and the other guy told us to come back. And long story short, they told me that I was illegal in Mexico and that what they were, they were going to do to me what, what uh, we did to illegal Mexicans here in the country. And so then another uh, truck pulled up and a guy got out with a shotgun. And uh, one of them got in the car and had me in the back. They, they took my companion out and they had me there. And they were saying a bunch of stuff. I was just learning Spanish at the time. But uh, I could tell that they were trying to get me to give them money. But... In my, you know, young missionary mind, what I was thinking is that they don't have anything on me and they're going to get in trouble for, for putting me in the cop car and essentially arresting me. So um, they're trying to get me to offer them a bribe so they can have something on me or something. You know what I mean? So I was, like, playing them and not offering them any money, and it was weird like that for a little bit. They um, eventually, you know, threatened me that if I didn't go pull all the money I had out of this ATM machine, that they would take the, my companion and beat him up. So when he took us to the ATM machine... He took his uniform, like his, the, top, the top part of his shirt off and followed me into a, it was like a mall and stayed a few steps behind me just to make sure I would go get the money, you know. So I went and got the money and it was only $80, like 800 pesos at the time, somewhere around there. And uh, anyways, they let me go. That apparently had been happening to several missionaries around Mexico City. So my church chose my case to, to prosecute. And throughout the rest of my 18 months or so in, in Mexico, every now and then I would go with a, a special police unit to investigate these corrupt police. And we had to do like a lineup and identify the people. And that was my first real experience with the law. Because, you know, in the United States, I'd never had any problems at all. Uh, I'd never stepped foot in the courtroom, anything like that. And so my first experience with the law or with attorneys or anything like that was actually in Mexico. And it does help me with my particular clients understand what they go through because I've lived it, you know. Now, the kinds of people that end up sitting across the desk from John are those who've entered into the country illegally, but most of the time, they've done so to escape terrible situations back home. If I were to generalize and say there's a typical story, it's that there's criminal gangs in uh, whatever country you're from who extort you for money. And they, they call it rent or la renta. And so basically you're paying them your work, you know, you have your job, you go to work, 
um, but you pay them half of your salary or more just so that they will leave you alone. So what happens is they run out of cash. They don't have money to pay these people off. So now they're under threat of kidnapping or death or something. Because of this particular line of work, John, who politically aligns himself with the Republican Party on most every issue except immigration, often finds himself in a tense and complicated relationship with the United States government. As an immigration attorney, what I do is I try to find a way for people who are not U.S. citizens to stay in the country. Um, And so I like to say that I'm trying to keep families together. And, uh, And then the people that aren't supposed to be here, maybe they're criminals or something in their past, I represent them the best, uh, to the best of my abilities. And then the other side, the government attorneys, try to kick them out of the country. And so between my best efforts and their best efforts, you know, hopefully we find the truth or what's closest to the truth. The weird thing is, usually in the United States, we're so used to the idea of you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But if you're trying to come into the country, that gets flipped on its head. You're guilty until proven innocent. And so when you go to court, it's just you and then you have the government counsel on the other side trying to kick him out of the country, basically. And the judge is supposed to be impartial, but they're all employed by the U.S. government. One major part of John's job is trying to find a way to argue that the United States should offer his client what they call asylum. And this is kind of like a limbo state of citizenship. It means that the person isn't going to be sent home back to their country so they can stay and they can work, they could get a driver's license, and eventually get citizenship. For asylum in the United States, you have to show that you're being persecuted, either because of your religion or because of your race or your nationality or because you're a member of some particular social group. And you also have to show that either the government is doing it or they're acquiescing to it. We've had cases from... Here's an example from Egypt, right? Uh, uh, somebody who was homosexual coming from Egypt, and he was a Cop- Coptic Christian. So he had both religion, and then in Egypt, he was being persecuted because of his sexual orientation. You know, so then we say that that's a particular social group, and we can defend a case based on that. Though being granted asylum is actually a really complicated process and only works in very specific situations. Often, even when people are living in awful situations, asylum law can't do anything to protect them. I've had people that um, are in that situation, say, in Guatemala. They're walking through Mexico. They get kidnapped by criminal gangs in Mexico. They get extorted, even raped. Then they come to the United States, and, and then the immigration judge is like, well, the rape occurred in Mexico. We're not returning you to Mexico. And then the stuff that's happening in Guatemala, we don't have protection for that under the uh, asylum laws because it's just general crime. And so it's, it's a, that's, I think, one of the biggest tragedies is people are going through very scary and, and hard times. Even you know, people dying or suffering or being persecuted, but because it doesn't fit, like you can't pigeonhole it into the asylum laws in the United States. You can't get protection and you have to go back to your country. Immigration hearings take place in immigration court, which John told me is pretty much like the courtrooms you see on TV, except there's no jury, and the prosecuting attorney on the other side represents the Department of Homeland Security, and ultimately the President of the United States. An immigration judge is the one that hears all the cases, and he or she makes the decisions about who can stay and who has to go. John's job is this high-stakes attempt to convince another person to grant his client asylum. It's interesting because you can wait literally years because of the backlog in immigration court to finally have your day in court. A lot of times you're your only witness, or sometimes you can have an expert witness come in and give an opinion about the dangers you face in your country. But it's not like you know a day long or three days long or a week long trial. 
uh, it's like your life is on the line and you only have two, maybe three hours to present this information to the judge. John's clients are often refugees who have nothing. They don't have paperwork that can demonstrate that their government is systematically persecuting them. So not only are these high-pressure situations intense, but they often rely entirely on the client's word alone. So the main thing that convinces a judge is seeing that the application, the affidavit the client writes, and then the client's spoken testimony are all consistent. Consistency is the key here. Any holes that the judge sees across any of these sources can spell the end of someone's chance to stay in the country. I just had a case um, for another guy from Bangladesh where he kept interrupting the interpreter and the attorneys. The judge yelled at him and said, you said that you don't speak English, but you're clearly understanding all the questions that are being asked before they're interpreted, and you're answering them before they're even being interpreted. So that was a thing for credibility, right? You said you you needed an interpreter, but here you are um, not using the interpreter and interrupting everybody, you know? So I don't have the decision yet, but I know the judge is going to come back and say that he was not credible. So writing, right? I mean, that's why we're here for this podcast. What kind of writing does John do? Well, it turns out that there's actually not just one way to go about it. Even within the strict confines of the law and what the law requires, there's wiggle room for lawyers to develop their own style. I think in the context of immigration, you kind you can get away without doing a lot of writing. You could get away with just filling out the application, then you're going to go and have your um, your hearing in front of the court. Some attorneys prefer that because they don't like to get locked into something in the application or something they've drafted. And then if something changes in court and is not consistent with, with what you wrote, then the judge can't use that stuff against you when you have your client testify. But my take on it is kind of the opposite. I want a chance to be able to write a brief and uh, essentially have my case heard before we even set in the foot in the courtroom so I can present my client who, who he or she is to the judge, what they've gone through, what the case law is. But um, I like to do a little, I, I like to have everything really consistent. Every time I make a little teeny mistake, um, I'm always like punishing myself about that. I'm like, no, this needs to be the same as this and this and this. They all need to be consistent across the board. My goal always is to win the case before I even step foot in the courtroom. I want to convince the judge that we deserve or that my client deserves asylum before I'm even in the courtroom. That doesn't always work, but um, there's times when it's worked and it's pretty effective. Now, the last thing I want you guys to hear from John is the way that he collaborates with his clients in order to tell their story. So he gets paid to take their stories, to dig in and find out what's going on in their lives and figure out how to take those foundational pieces of the story and package them up for a specific audience. In this case, it's the judge. So as a lawyer, John really is a professional storyteller. Um, Even people with legitimate claims, if they can't present that claim in a way that uh, is clear to an immigration judge or an asylum officer, then sometimes they lose even though they have a, a legitimate claim. A lot of times your clients, they don't know what asylum law is. They don't know what they have to say. So they're going to be in here focusing 100% on one thing when something else is going to win their case. That's hard for people to do because when it's you and it's your life, uh, you you want to go chronologically and start from the very first thing that happened and talk about all the little things that have happened to you, right? And you don't have time to do that. You just have to hit the very high points and present it in a way that meets your burden and convinces the judge that this case is different from all the other cases that I hear um, and I should give asylum in this case. Um, this last case that we won, she was really focused on, she was being extorted too by gangs. 
uh, in her country and they were taking like half of her money every month and, and things like that. So that's part of the reason why she left. But I didn't, I just, I didn't even focus on that. I just ignored that whole part because I knew that the other thing that was happening to her, the domestic violence was going to win her case. And so, um, I just took that information and dug into it, asked her more questions. You're kind of digging for that information so you can present your case to the judge in a compelling way and at the same time hit those important points for, for asylum. We get a lot of training on storytelling. And it's funny because you go through law school and it's supposed to be all complicated and this and that and you're in front of judges. And, but it comes back to what you do as a kid. Like you just love stories. You need to know how to tell a story. You know, you can do the case law and this and that. But if you can tell a good, compelling story, like look, my client – Without lying and without making stuff up, it's just the way you present it. You have a hook at the beginning of your story, you lay out the facts, and then you show out what you show why your client deserves to stay in the United States and make it sort of a compelling story with, you know, if you can think of it this way, the small violin playing in the background, like, look, my client, out of all your cases, this is the worst case, and you need to give my client asylum because of this and this. And tell that story because as people, we love stories and stories, even if you're a judge, you love to hear a good story. Big thanks to Jonathan Shaw for the interview. If you'd like to contact John, you can find a link to his law firm's webpage in the description. If you'd like to contact me, Stephen Hopkins, you can find me on Twitter at SeeMyLittleKnee or email me at StephenWHopkins at gmail.com. Music from this episode is from TwinMusicom.org. This has been Writing Questions, where we explore the role of writing in our lives and cultures. We'll see you next time.